Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Charles Robinson, and welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Black art has lived in the shadows. On this special edition of Black History Month, Future City will look at artists and curators who are showcasing black talent. During the show, you'll hear Baltimore's own Joyce Scott. She's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Her work ranges from creating beadwork, sculptures, and performance art. We get a special treat as she graces us with an impromptu performance. Larry Poncho Brown has been creating art for over 40 years. We'll look back at a start, his break, and Afrofuturism. We kick off the show with a conversation with the new director of the American Visionary Arts Museum. I'm delighted to be joined by the new director at the Visionary Arts Museum. Why don't you tell the audience who you are and what you do? Well, I'm happy to do so. My name is Janine Whitfield, and I am the director of the American Visionary Art Museum. And I just got into town in September, and already I do. I have to be honest and say I really love it here in Baltimore. Let's talk a little bit about the Visionary Arts Museum. Uh, Your predecessor kind of collected things that were kind of off the beaten path. Are you of that same ilk? I am. So this would require me to tell you a little bit about my story. I'm born and raised in Detroit and really uh, just climbing the corporate ladder, doing everything that my folks thought a young African-American woman should be doing. And then in 1993, I took a wrong turn, uh, seemingly wrong turn down Heidelberg Street in Detroit. And there I met a man who had transformed his entire block into this wild, really strange outdoor junk art museum. (laughs) And I have to say it that way because I'm expressing it to you the way I saw it initially. And the uh, interesting thing about it is he asked me to check it out. So I got out and I was thinking, well, okay, this man needs to get a job. He's got too much time on his hands. Over the course of time, I learned how he was using found and discarded materials as a way or a metaphor to talk about what was happening in our community in Detroit. And so I began to understand that this junk art was telling a story. And it really blew my mind. For example, he had these giant faces painted on automobile hoods, and he called it Faces in the Hood. And, you know, when you start to to give a narration or a commentary to the work, it changes what we see. So absolutely, um, the idea of using found and discarded materials to repurpose is a very important concept today. I know that sometimes when a person like yourself comes into a new city, you kind of have to kind of feel the pulse of what's going on. You know, that's a really good question, Charles, and I'm really glad you asked it because in Detroit, you know, there's some similarities with Detroit, Baltimore, and many other cities where there's a high population of African-American people. 
And oftentimes when these cities are supposedly on the comeback, you have all the expats or, you know, new people that come into a city. And, you know, if they're not careful, they will send the wrong message because a lot of times people come into the cities with new ideas and antidotes of what needs to be done. And they disregard the work that's already being done by the people that live in these cities. And I was very conscious of that when I came here. So one of the first things I did, Charles, was I just hit the ground and got to, you know, try to get to know people. I, I won't say try. I am getting to know people still. And I'm listening and I'm learning what is already being done to see how some of the ideas I have might fit or marry the original ideas already in this city. That is so important. That has been 50% of my time spent here is meeting and talking with other people, learning what's happening already and not being arrogant to say that I have great ideas for Baltimore. No, not interested. I know that there has been this movement in the art world, if you will, to not only embrace new communities, but communities that heretofore may not have had an opportunity or space to create in. Are you prepared to literally open up the space for these communities? I think that the next exhibition at AVAM will answer that question. But let me just say to you that I have a vision that has to do with wrapping our arms around our own talent. And also, as it relates to the idea of, you know, visionaries or creative uh, self-taught artists, many times that's found in our communities, not only in our communities, but also in rural areas of the South. A lot of the very famous and well-known self-taught artists whose works are selling in the hundreds of thousands of dollars are African-American people. And that's very dynamic when I think about it. So you would just simply know that this talent exists, but it hasn't necessarily existed or they've not necessarily had the training. So I think that we are introducing or bringing out the creative talents of our folks. This is a new door that is being open to give all people of color an opportunity to let their colors shine. I'm wondering, as you navigate this space, what do you want to try and kind of expose people to? I think that people are undervalued. And what I mean by that, Charles, is many times we look at or covet things that we think we see in other people. And we want those things for ourselves. And I think that what I learned, and I'm, I'm sharing from as a result of my experience. And I'll give you uh, an example. When I first met Tyree Guyton, the artist in Detroit that changed my life, and he asked me if I would help him. And I said, no, because I don't understand what you're doing. So he performed an experiment. He gave me paint, paper, markers, crayons. Then he blindfolded me. And he said, now paint what you see. That painting that I produced as a result of not being able to see has, has followed me and has been a part of me for as long as I can imagine. So I wrote my first poem 
when I was 18, but I wrote my next 300 after I met the artist. So what I'm hoping that I can do is touch the individual to help each and every one of these young people and even older people to see the gifts that they possess, what they have in them already, and to be able to cultivate that because we all have something. I really believe that. That's Jeannie Whitfield. She is the new director of the American Visionary Arts Museum. Jeannie, thank you for joining us here on Future City. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Janine Whitfield. In our next segment, Larry Poncho Brown is part of an art collective which toiled in Baltimore looking for acceptance from a wider community. Some people leave, but Brown has always used Beemore as a home base and derives inspiration from the challenge of creating art. Not everything has come easy, but he made opportunities through his many contacts. I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend, Larry Poncho Brown. He is an artist and he's been at it and he has a new book out of a 40 year perspective of the art of Poncho. First of all, Larry, uh, you and I have talked a number of times about, you know, how you got started. Why don't you give the audience a little bit of your background? Well, I was born and raised in Baltimore City. I am the uh, the son of a uh, teenage parent that gave up his dream of being an artist. And so uh, I used to imitate my father's work as a child, ultimately went to Carver Vocational Technical High School. And from there, uh, my art career blossomed out. As you began your career, you started at Carver Vocational Technical High School. You ended up at MICA. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Well, at MICA, it was a um, uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. I went. I got an opportunity to be awarded a a, a Saturday class at um, at MICA, where I got a chance to really um, come outside of the school. I had only been in public schools. I had never been in a formal classroom with other people, people of other races, and so it was a nice opportunity for me to see what my talent was in relationship to the people around me. But it really didn't resonate until I actually uh, went there for undergrad, really being a slightly ahead of everybody else. What did formal training do for your art? Formal training basically taught me that there was no advantage being white. I thought that if you were white, you you had a, an opportunity to participate in other types of things that automatically made you better than me. And so what formal education made me realize is that we have an innate ability in ourselves that has nothing to do with race, class, or any other category. What was your big break? Uh, my big break came um, when I uh, was following Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory came out with the Bohemian Diet. He was doing a lecture in Baltimore. I decided I was going to take a portfolio down to his show and present it to him after his presentation. I got an opportunity to do that, called me back and said, hey, is this your work? And I said, yes. And he said, hey, I got a project I want you to work on. And that really was the first big break I got in the art. He was the first celebrity to endorse my work. So I know you were introduced some, to some folks at the Cosby Show. How did that impact you? I had mess, met Mr. Cosby when he came to um, Morgan State University for a benefit. Just the uh, Morgan State University commissioned me to do a poster for that event. But later on, because my work had been circulating in the art realm, 
a distributor uh, forwarded my works to the Cosby show, a different world and different TV shows. And I began to get a lot of exposure uh, through a lot of the black sitcoms with my work being placed on the sets. These days, you know, um, you're part of a genre I think people call Afrofuturistic. Uh, that's, that's a new term. Afrofuturism is basically us envisioning ourselves in the, in the future or what really proving that we will surpass all realms of, of life. You know, there's a future world. And, and if anybody's going to make it to a future world, Black folks are. We have been through everything we could possibly go through. We're the most hated people on the planet because of our perseverance and our tenacity and our willingness to not die. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have traveled to Africa and Ghana. What does that experience give to you? Grounding. You know, a lot of times we have a point of reference, but, you know, uh, I say that black people in America are the blackest people on the planet because we have a consciousness that's rooted in an idea. We don't even know what it's really like in Africa, but we aspire to be uh, connected to that space. And so taking people back to Africa, which is what I've been doing the last few years, is, is something I really enjoy doing, uh, having people go back to their roots. I think that after you, uh, you, you uh, return to your roots, you are forever changed. We take so much for granted with our existence in this country that we, uh, I, I think sometimes we need to have our sensibilities reshuffled and really learn what our origins look like. I want to get out of here on this, Larry. What do you say to that young uh, person who may be thinking about a Korean art? You've been at this at, for 40 plus years. What do you say to a young person who wants to to kind of follow not necessarily in your footsteps, but think they want a career in art. I tell students now to practice, 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 because most of the students are not creating enough work. They're in a, uh, the distractions have made them become more introspective than I ever was. And so what I'm trying to do now is to get students to understand that they can reach their goals by the repetition of practice, because I think that whole adage is, has been lost in this world of getting famous overnight. That's Larry Pacho Brown, and we thank you for joining us on Future City. Thank you so much, Charles. And now, a conversation between father and son. Hi, hello there, everybody. My name is Spencer Bryan. Some of you guys may know me as a producer for Future City and as well as an on-air host for WIPR. So usually I'm the behind-the-scenes guy with this production, but because we're doing an episode about art, I thought it'd be a great idea to not only have a great artist that I know, but he's also my father. You know, he's been doing uh, art for a little over 50 years now. So I just thought it'd be a great idea uh, for Black History Month to have my father on here talking about his art career. So, hey, Dad, how are you? I'm doing OK. Doing all right for an old man. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted you on here, you know, because I know I've ever since I was young, I've known you to do art. So when we came up with this show, uh, this idea for this topic, uh, you were the first person that I thought about. So I know, of course, about your background as far as where you're from. But, you know, if you don't mind, go ahead and tell the 
few people, you know, who are listening, a few listeners who you are, where you're from, where you grew up, how you first got into art, things like that. Well, it goes all the way back to the very beginning. I got to tell you, well, first of all, I'm from Washington, D.C., born and kind of grew up in Berry Farms in Anacostia. And pretty much my art career has been around as long as I can remember. Uh, really, it started. I, my, my first awareness of it was really in the first grade. I was, we were all doing Christmas trees, and I just was doing my tree like everybody else. But then I looked up, and half the class was surrounded by me looking at me doing my Christmas tree, which I didn't think was the big deal until later on. And I was like, why? Why would everybody do that? But then um, uh, we all went out to recess, <laughs> and we had, well before we went to recess, we had to put our names on the drawing. Put the name on the drawing. We all went to recess. And then when we came back from recess, somebody had erased my name and put their name on it. So, but then there was a few people that stood up for me and said, no, that's his drawing. So that kind of was a real enlightenment story. And it was really like in the first grade. It kind of made me realize there was something different on what I was doing. So that was really my first enlightenment on art. But um, as far as art, art is who I am. And that's really the centerpiece of who I am, why I exist, and what I do, what I do. And there's, and in my life, um, nothing's changed since then. So pretty much, that's been my story. And um, starting out very young, I won a few contests, but the real major one, I won. Uh, I was elected. I think I was about nine years old. Um, I was elected at a uh, it was a DC contest, and they elected three students to be students at the Smithsonian Museum of Art and History. And that was another big moment because it kind of introduced me to another whole world of art that I never knew existed. So pretty much it's been, again, like I said, it's been around me, in me, through me, all the way in. So that pretty much is my story with art. That's the beginning. And as an indie, yeah, because I'm still here, but that's my beginning. So it wasn't, if I'm not mistaken, I remember you telling me a story about Aunt Dot that entered your art into a contest. Is that the same one? Well, it was one. I was about 13 when that happened. I did a drawing and I was a little nervous about doing it. But Aunt Dot, well, my mother was a real, real force for that. But also along with Aunt Dot, she was an unbelievable force that really helped shape my life because she pushed me into the world to showpiece my art. I was a little shy at that time. And she just did not, she believed in me so much. She pushed me and put me in shows. And I think I was 12 or 13 and I got a lot of recognition. And it was, I forgot where it was. It was a show downtown in DC somewhere, but she made a point of putting me in whether I liked it or not. So we did it. And I, I owe both my mother and our dot, you know, to really, really, really making this all happen for me. So I'm really, taking it to a whole new level. And, um, but yeah, so you're right. I'm glad, I'm surprised you remember that story, but yeah. Yeah, I remember because, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, how'd you get, when people ask me how I got into radio and producing, I'm like, well, it's important that you have family and close, you know, close family that supports you. And you guys have always supported me into a career that not a lot of people say they want to get into right so you know i believe we all have our own you know influences and inspirations and people that kickstart us you know into our dreams and professions so that's right when i think of art 
personally, I just think of paintings, but of course that's not true. So when you think of art other than paintings, what type of art does exist out there? The, the wonderful and the greatest thing about art and art is in the eye of the beholder. And when you look at art and we can look at art from a point of, you know, it, it, what, what people create, whether it's paintings, whether it's sculpture, whether it's abstracts, every there's no limit to what people do as far as how they create art. Personally, for me, um, you know, as far as art in itself, my personal likings are really from the old masters. We'll go. We'll talk about that. I'm assume shortly. But as far as art, I, I love all art. I really do. I love the fact of how people go in their create creative mode. And sometimes you don't know what to expect. And sometimes you don't know how you read it and you don't know how the painting reads you or the illustration or whatever it may be or how you read it. That's the fascinating thing about art. There is no real finite black and white answer to it. There is none. And I always tell people art is in the eye of the beholder. It's no different than looking at a beautiful day outside and you're looking at the leaves change. That's just as, that's, that's just as beautiful as art also. And then when you're looking at the hummingbird and you look at all the nature, that's all art in its purest form. But art is art. Art is surrounded. Art is surrounding us all the time, all the time. Even when you look at a beautiful design car, that's all part of art, all of it. So uh, it's just in the different phases, different factors, different ways of doing it. But yeah, art is the centerpiece of life, man. It's a, it's, it's, it's major. So what do you exactly specialize in like as i know there you know there's oil paintings and color uh, uh watercolors and pastels matter of fact i remember that one time you had that art show in a few years back and i went there expecting to see just oil paintings all over the place but i remember there was yeah. a art piece on there where it was like a large quilt with beads on it yeah well one i guess my first question is like what is your favorite type of art if you do have a favorite type of art and then what is the art that you specialize in well the, uh, the, my favorite even the quilt because i look at the appreciation of what it takes to do something like that i mean my god that i mean depending on the quilt itself that is an absolute brilliant thing when you look at the time and execution of creating something like that but my favorites are paintings whether it's acrylic or whether it's oil because I don't know what it is about that. I love sculpture. I do love sculpture also. But oil, I love that type of art. But my favorite for me and what I'm used to, and even now, that's today, and it may change tomorrow, uh, oil painting. Oil painting is my favorite because for me, I love the execution of it for my, my approach. And starting from ground zero with nothing in front of you. And some people go directly to the canvas. Some people do a lot of planning, they organize it, then they go to the campus. And that's kind of who I am and how I execute. I start from the beat with a thought, and then I go to pencil and paper. And I stay with pencil and paper a long time before it gets to the campus. So that's me, that's my approach. I guess you answered my next question, like, cause I never really knew how you approached it. So it's yeah. like with me being in radio, the voiceover world, I have my own favorites. Like, for example, my favorite voiceover artist or my favorite voice, one of them is, of course, James Earl Jones and then Keith David and, you right. know, guys like that. So in the art world, 
I'm assuming that you have more than one favorite. You can't pin right. it down to just one favorite artist. But if you do have a favorite artist, who would that be and why? Well, I tell you what, that's a hard question to answer, Spencer. But but I can tell you there are three that are on the same level as my favorite. There is no one what well, it's four that's on the same level. I, I can't put one in front of the other, but they're all one as far as I'm concerned. Um, and believe it or not, these are the old masters. Um, I'm gonna go back to the Dutch painter uh, Vermeer. Uh, when you look at his paintings, it's just it's just an absolute work of art when you create something that small with that much detail. And when you look at his life and what he went through and he died as such a young man, there's a few paintings that he did today, they're priceless. Another one is um, one of the greatest portrait painters that ever walked the earth, in my opinion, was John Singer Sargent. He was an American-born painter, but he lived in Paris. And his paintings, his oil paintings were just unbelievable. And when I went to see a show a few years, a while back, they had it at the um, National Gallery of Art. Uh, his, his artwork, I can't, you can't put it in words when you look at what he created. Not just the art, but how he created paint on canvas. And one of my favorites of all time is Michelangelo. Michelangelo was dual. He was a sculptor and a painter. And if anybody knows anything about artwork, he basically transformed the art world in one lifetime for what he did. Not only with the famous sculptures with the David, the Pieta, and the 16th Chapel. So he was one of them. But the one favorite artist, uh, there's two more. There's one, there's, the other one is an American-born painter, Norma Rockwell. Norma Rockwell will say, well, oh, yeah, you know, he's a little milk and cookie, yeah, whatever. So, no, when you look at his paintings, and when you understand oil painting, and when you look at his execution, it's mind-boggling what he did on campus. It was just unbelievable what he did with his paintings. It was just it was just amazing what he did. And the one painter that's living today, Mian Situ, M-I-A-N-S-I-T-U. He is one of my favorite living painters today. He's out of California and he's been painting a long time, but his stuff is absolutely just gorgeous. So there are a lot of artists that have come along that I really like over the years, but my favorite time frame has to be the Italian Renaissance period. That was when you had Michelangelo, you had Da Vinci, you had Titian and Raphael all at the same time, living in the same city, creating some of the greatest paintings that ever existed on earth. So it was the Italian Renaissance period that I loved the most. But art, again, it's, it's so many movements and changes and evolving, and it keeps changing and evolving all the time. This movement, that movement. But for me, that movement, the Italian Renaissance, it was, it was, you, it's priceless to me as far as I'm concerned. So that, I hope I, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. You did. I was, yeah. I, I don't, you know, me, I'm, people probably don't know this, but um, my second passion is, I know you know that. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people may not know that I'm also a historian at Arlington National Cemetery. So I read about history. I remember you told me about this story and I read some of it about my, some of it myself is the story of John Singer Sargent, where apparently how he got famous, he put yeah. a painting in someone's house or something like that. What he did, what he did, he was a young painter at the time. He was 21, 22. His father, from what I read, from what I vaguely remember, his father knew of a diplomat. And he asked his father 
that if he would ask his friend, could he paint his wife for free? Knowing there were parties all the time. So his father asked his friend, he says, oh, yeah, he could paint her. He painted this woman's, he, I forgot the name of the painting, but he did it for free. And he hung it up in her house. And that was the beginning of his career. And he never looked back as far as the portrait painting, prior portrait painting. He was so good as a portrait painter, he had a five-year backlog of people wanting him to do his, to do his portraits. And if I'm, and I, please don't quote me on this, but I vaguely remember, and I may be wrong on this, but even at that time, because he got tired of doing it, so he just started raising the prices of the paintings. And from what I understand, he was selling them for $80,000 a piece in 1888. And he still had a five-year backlog. That's how good he was as a portrait painter. His paintings were just, it was one of the few portrait painters I see that you don't even have to know the person but you want the painting on your wall. That's how great he was as, as a portrait painter. And everybody can't do portraits. You have a lot of great painters out there. And some people may, have, may be able to do people, but portraits are a whole different way of thinking. His approach is when you see the real, not just on magazines or in the internet, when you look at the painting itself in real life, you look at the layers and layers and layers of painting underneath before you see the actual painting. That's what I see. That's what made him so brilliant. And they looked exactly like the person. And it was like a person walking off the canvas. That's how good he was. So those are, that's why he's one of my favorite artists of all time. With you, yeah, well, I see, that's why I didn't know that whole story. I want to focus more on you and your the work that you've created. I know that you have, if, correct me if I'm wrong, three different series. You have the music series, you have the dance series, and now you have your portraits and history. Yes. So of course the music series, you know, in all three series focuses on African-American art. So you have the music series and the yes. dance series with your, the third series. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that is? And your Oh yeah. The third series, Portraits in History, uh, that is that is something I've been wanting to do all my life. Uh, this is one of these series that really means the world to me. It does. And what this is, when I talk about Portraits in History, I'm talking about people and how we live really before the Civil War. So we're talking going all the way back to during that time frame when there was slavery. What I want to say about this series and, and why it's so important to me it's just the power of the spirit of how it moves from then to today. And that's what I hope people get out of these paintings. I really do, because there is just something that it keeps dinging in me. It keeps plugging at me to do this series. And it's been, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm 60, just turned 64. But this series has been in my mind since I was 30. So when I said, okay, I got to do this. So it's going to end up being a six painting series. And when you see it, it's going to be obvious what time frame it is. So that that's the next one. And I want to finish it hopefully very shortly. Just been very busy with a lot of other things. But the Portraits and Dance and the Portraits and Sound series, um, again, Portraits and Sound focuses just on the spirit of music, the music itself, uh, the people and the music. I just think music is one of those things that is truly the connectivity that, that just connects all of us on the planet Earth. No matter what your sound is, 
music is a thing that is a thread that keeps people in societies enlightened, I think, as far as music. So that's that was my inspiration behind that. But then when you look at portraits and dance, it was, again, that's a flow up from music, but it just comes to me. So I just kind of got, let's just do a few paintings in this series. But then I said, okay, I got to stop messing around and do the portraits in history. So that's kind of where I am at this moment is doing that series. So maybe because I sound a little bit biased because I grew up watching your, you know, looking at your paintings. Of course, uh, the portraits in history will probably be my favorite series when it's completed. But as far as the portraits and sound, my favorite painting is called The Encore. That's my personal favorite one. Your your encore. What was your inspiration behind that particular? Oh, painting? that one. That one. I got to tell you, uh, the instruments. You look at all the musical instruments. You get drums. You look at the sax. You're looking at all these instruments. Bass. You're looking at all the harp. You're looking at there's you know all of that. No other instrument for me personally touches me in the center than the piano. The piano is is like. I, I can't explain it. I can't put the piano in words. It just touches me. That instrument alone is one of those things I never told you this, but if I had to learn to play an instrument, that would be the one I want to learn is that one. Always have, even as a kid. It's the that, and to me, when you look at this series, out of all the ones that's been done in the Portraits and Sound series, that one is probably stands unique more than any of the other paintings on the approach to it. And I, and I got to say, this is one of those things from an artist standpoint, if artists are listening, sometimes you get a vision and you're like, OK, well, I started this vision and then it ended up being this way. Well, I started the vision and I never saw how it came out, but it came out totally different. That is the one painting. And even to this day that I saw it clearly in my head and it came out exactly the way I saw it. Nothing else moved from it. It came out exactly the way I saw it in concept, exactly. Nothing changes, nothing from that painting changed from the idea of where it started. And if any artist are listening, they would know, and the struggle sometimes with an artist is that you gotta just struggle through certain things. Things aren't going the way you want them to, you didn't see it the way it should be, either you start over again, you change direction, whatever your issues are, Art is sometimes not as easy as people think it is. So you have to have the will to just keep moving and keep going forward. And very rarely, and I can tell you this, and I can't speak for a lot of artists, but I'm sure ones that are listening, very rarely you hit the nail on the head right out the gate, very rarely. But the encore is the one that out of all the portraits and sound series, like I said, that hit the nail on the head exactly the way I saw it. So I'm really happy with that particular piece. It really came out the way I wanted it to, and especially celebrating the music and celebrating the instrument of the piano. You know, that's weird you mentioned that because that's the one instrument I would learn, want to learn how to play too, mm -hmm. yeah. is the piano. So with that, I think I, I appreciate you coming on here and you know sharing a little bit more about you know your art career, your inspirations. Before we go, when people listen, where can people find more of your artwork? Oh, sure, right online, clementbryantfineart.com. C-L-E-M-E-N-T-B-R-Y-A-N-T-F-I-N-E-A-R-T.com. And I know uh, the encore is going to be up there. Yes. And is your dance series going to be up there? Uh, some of the dance series is already up there. Not all of them, but some are there. So when people go to your website, will they be able to see some of the portraits in history? 
Uh, yes, in fact, they'll be available today on Clement Bryant Fine Art. Uh, uh, there's going to be a six painting series, but on the site starting today, there will be two of that six painting series. And the two paintings are called, one is called Hope, Faith, and Endurance. And the other one is, go, is called a Juneteenth Celebration. Well, Dad, I definitely appreciate you coming on here and talking to me. And, you know, people can see a different side of me other than just the being the weekend host and, you know, the producer. You know, they can hopefully they saw a little bit where my inspiration came from, you know, being on the radio and in this industry. So I definitely thank you for coming on here. Oh, I thank you for having me. I think it's good. I think it's cool to interview with my kid, man. What's wrong with that? It's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Having a conversation with Joyce Scott is such a joy. She'll have you laughing, thinking, and amazed. What do you say to someone who's a MacArthur Genius Fellow? I am delighted to welcome to Future City my good friend, Joyce Scott. First of all, Joyce, what are you doing these days? Well, thank God I'm alive in these wild and ridiculous days. I'm just back from Toledo where I work with the Toledo Museum um, Glass Initiative. So I've been working with people blowing glass for me out there. I have an exhibition that's called Messages. The catalog is out. You can actually go online and get it, Joyce J. Scott Messages. That's going to travel to three different museums around the country. The first one opens this month at an Iowa museum. And uh, it's contemporary, a lot of jewelry work. I'm working on all kinds of things with myself and my mother for the next two years. So you'll you'll be seeing me around. And I I won't be breaking up or doing nothing terrible. That's not. <laughs> Let's talk about your artwork. And and I think a lot of people know you for your jewelry and some of your sculptures, but you're much more than that. You know, I have been to some of your performances. I personally love all your comedy. How do you kind of put it all together, if you will? Well, I was blessed in the 70s, the late 70s, early 80s to meet Kailawal Muhammad. And we were the Thunder Thigh Review all through the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. And so when I say I was blessed, Kay is a, a trained kind of professor in theater as a director and as a performer. So I worked hand in hand with her. I was raised in a Pentecostal church. That right there should answer just about everything. You know, when I'm doing my practice, my artwork, I have to figure out what works well. And I'll be beating up a piece of jewelry or sculpture, trying to make it answer these questions. And the point is, 
what I'm asking it to do is not what a piece of sculpture does. So it's a performance or a song. So I have to get better about uh, knowing exactly how to answer the questions that are always circling in my mind. And it's not always as a visual. You're a MacArthur Fellow. These are so-called genius grants. Well, I knew you were a genius before you got the grant, but uh, what did it do to you and how you approach things? Well, I got it in 2016. So by that time, I was also a geezer. And I'm one of the oldest ones to receive a MacArthur. What it has done is for those who need this kind of validation, it has validated my years toiling in the fields. You know, it's validated all the time spent. It's validated all of those people who directed and supported me and, and all of those people. And here's that old African-American canard whose shoulders I stand on. And it's true. You know, my mother, Elizabeth Caldwell Talfer Scott, was a nationally known quilter, but she also was a cotton picker as a kid. My father picked tobacco. So for me to be supported by them, even past them being on the other side now in Baltimore, heaven. It just allowed me to know that my whole life, and I, I stopped working for anyone in 1974, was really the right road. And when you ask me, what has it done for me? Well, it gave me some money. It's all gone now, folks. Don't be calling me for nothing. But it allowed me time for, for introspection, not only just about what my artwork should be about, but who I am and, and, and how lucky I am to still be on this road. Let me just tell you, folks, I've had the opportunity to be with Joyce when the Maryland Institute College of Art honored her. She graced us not only with her art, but with her voice. And that was one of the truly great things that I got to witness in person. Joyce, I want, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea that how one defines an artist, if you will, uh, I had a conversation with the new director of the Visionary Arts Museum, and she is of the belief, and I think you're of the same belief, that art is organic. You find things that you kind of go, I think that's interesting. Is that kind of how your art works these days? No, I, I, I think art being an organic or natural alchemical kind of persona it's true, but I think art is everything. So I wouldn't co um, only categorize it as being organic, especially in a time where people are using all kinds of technology to create artwork. And the only connection they have are fingers on when they're typing. They're not actually doing wet work anymore. It's in a box. We're doing a project now, and the curator found the Creek artist who taught me the peyote stitch, which is the basis of the beadwork that I do, who I met in 1976 in Maine. We were both youngins, and she taught me that, which changed my work. We just talked last week, and it was just pretty amazing. She's still making art, but she's a teacher, so she also has technical and academic knowledge as well. Joyce, I think most of our audience knows that you have done and you've curated as well as created different things in your lifetime. Probably 
I think one of the most important things he recently created was a statue to Harriet Tubman. Unfortunately, that statue was defaced. First of all, tell me the idea behind the Harriet Tubman statue that you created and a little bit about what you felt when you found out that it was defaced. I was asked, I think it's around five years ago now, to have a one-person exhibition at Grounds for Sculpture in New Jersey. It's a sculpture park. So I had an exhibition of my work, an installation inside, and two installations outside. One was a 15-foot dirt Harriet Tubman, and we had uh, graffiti on her, I mean, beadwork on her. It was pretty amazing. And the other was the Araminta, that was Harriet Tubman's original name, a sculpture that is now at the Bannerker Douglas Museum. When the show was over, the other piece made out of dirt disappeared. I think they knocked it down at night because in typical Harriet form, she's like, I'm not going anywhere. And I had a dirtologist, a guy who, you know, he made the dirt so like, this will last for around five months and it'll get rained and snowed on and it will disappear. And I, I did that poetically about how a love for her wanes and then, you know, depending upon what's happening in politics, it's back out front again. So this Harriet withstood all kinds of things. The Araminta that is at the museum because it was outside in snow and, you know, people wandering around this place and they never destroyed it. And I have all kinds of people pictures of people from all ilks and kids, you know, so you bring it home <laughs> and it goes to the Banneker Douglas Museum. It looks great. It's very close to a police station. It's really close to the cops. From what I understand is, you know, young, young folks, college kids assaulted that sculpture. They obviously don't know the import of Harriet Tubman. They don't have the home training that says you can't go out in the street and tear up other people's stuff. I was insulted and very saddened that someone vandalized something of beauty just because they could. It's not as if, you know, Harriet or Araminta was peeping in their window at night or it obstructed their they're walking down the street or, you know, it looked like their grandmother who they hated. It's none of that stuff. It's somebody who just had the bad fortune of not having enough love in their life. That's the way I see it. Punished is not the word that I, I want. What I would like to do is have them know the import of their behavior. But I was not shocked. I was just like, well, I guess it's my turn because I have public art pieces and I know that people can do some very silly things. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Joyce Scott. She does amazing work. We will post some of her work on the Future City website. Joyce, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have a chance to talk to you. May I end with this? Sure, go ahead. This is something that I, I end my lectures with. And because it came from my, my time in church, my godfather was the preacher. And he used to preach with me in his arms when I became obstreperous in the congregation. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Thanks, Joyce Scott. 
especially for that song. If you're interested, Scott will be performing later this month at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Go to the Future City webpage for more information. What is art and how does black art fit into society should be simple. We sometimes make it complex. People do not always understand the nuances of the creator. Our guests today have a unique perspective on the creation and dissemination of their works. Let me suggest you support them by going to their showings in galleries and museums. If you have the wherewithal to buy their works, please do so. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their expertise and allowing us to hear their knowledge. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. You can listen to extended conversations with all of our guests and find out more about them by visiting wypr.org and search for Future City. Welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions at futurecity, that's one word, at wypr.org. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.